Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a deep dive into Crown and Skull by Runehammer. I'm going to show some of the latest updates for the Sly Flourish Patreon, including the current version of the City of Arches and a new list of 1D100 monuments. Today's big D&D tip, we're going to talk about how to make a random list of the factions from your campaign and how valuable that can be for the campaign that you're running. And we're going to cover our first batch of Patreon questions from the February 2024 Patreon on Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome stuff, like a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a whole bunch of tools to help you run your games. You get tons of stuff for being a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a really good deal, and I'm going to show a couple of those things today, uh, but you should check it out. Uh, and to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. Just earlier today, I was poking around on YouTube and saw a wonderful YouTube video by Ginny D where she talks about how to run a D&D game one-on-one. -on -one. I think it's an outstanding video. It really captures all of the, the thoughts that I have about the value of running a one-on-one -on -one game. A lot of valuable tips for what it's like to run a one-on-one -on -one game. It's, a, it's under 10 minutes long. It's a fantastic video. And I would recommend if you play at all, it's worth watching this video because it can show you how much fun it can be to run a one-on-one -on -one style D&D game. I think this is a very underappreciated way to enjoy this hobby of ours, that we often think about our D&D games or our tabletop role-playing games as a group activity, and they're often very fun as a group activity. But sometimes it can be hard to get a group together, and it's actually much easier if it's you and one other person. I did this with Enrique Bertrand for a whole series that we ran for Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. It was super fun to do. I've run one-on-one -on -one games with my wife. We loved it dearly. You can do so much and have such interesting adventures and interesting sessions playing one-on-one. -on -one. It is not a lesser way to enjoy the hobby. It is a different way to enjoy the hobby that can be very, very exciting. So please check out, you will find a link to this video in the show notes. Please check it out. It is an outstanding video and really captures a fun way to play tabletop role-playing games that we off, often, don't, often don't do. So check that out. Today, I wanted to dive deep into the role-playing game Crown and Skull by Runehammer. So we're going we're gonna to talk all about this today. The fine folks over at Runehammer sent me a review copy of the collector's edition of Crown and Skull. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. Just an amazing, an amazing looking book. And uh, I spent a good deal of time digging deep into the book to understand how this game plays, try to understand what it's about and talk about it on today's show. I did, however, buy the digital version of the book. So I do have some of my own money at stake. However, that said, I was gifted the, uh, the collector's edition of the cover, or the collector's edition of the book. And it is gorgeous. It is a really, really good looking book. I'm very, very happy to receive that book. So thank you to the folks at Runehammer. This is not a review of Crown and Skull. I don't feel like I can properly review the game or really any game uh, unless I've run it or played it myself at least once, but ideally more so. And one thing that's very clear to me is like my understanding of Shadow Dark as an example has changed significantly since playing Shadow Dark and running Shadow Dark for 20 sessions now than when I originally read Shadow Dark. Some questions that I had have been answered, some thoughts that I have about how the gameplay has changed. I still 
I loved it when I read it and I still love it now. I still think it was, I thought it was an outstanding game when I first picked it up and it's still an outstanding game now, but my, my deeper view of it has changed. I have a feeling that would be the same case with crown and skull as well. I have a feeling that a lot of the things that are going on inside crown and skull, you can't really understand until you've actually seen it in play. That said, I still think that doing a spotlight of the game is a useful enterprise and something that I think you should take a look at. Uh, There's also uh, a really good valuable thing in it which is you can download the player's guide for crown and skull uh which is i think 80 pages long right it's a huge yeah 78 page crown and skull player's guide for free it's a direct link i will link to it down in the show notes i'll link to all the stuff for crown and skull down in the show notes but one of them you don't have to log in you don't have to give an email address you don't have to do anything else you could just click a link and get a 78 page which is really about a third of the book like it's a good chunk of the book because a and this is valuable in so many different ways. One, you get to read it and get an understanding for what this game is like and get a feeling for it before you have to throw down your hard-earned cash to say, do I want to buy it? But also, if you are a player of the game, it means you don't have to buy a copy of the game in order to get the player stuff. You can just download this, which means it's a game that is easier for people to be able to pick up and run because really only the GM needs to actually physically buy the book. Everybody else can get a downloadable copy. That is a great way to make the game easier for a group to pick up. I think it's asking a lot, especially if you don't know if you're going to like the game i think it's asking a lot to expect that the dm and all of the players would have to buy the game in order to run it so uh, the fact that there's a 78 page free player's guide is outstanding and something that i would there's no reason for you to not check it out it's literally one click in the show notes to to dig in so i think that that is a really valuable thing so let me talk a little bit about well so let me just Mention Runehammer a little bit. Who's Runehammer? So Runehammer is a publisher of some excellent RPG material, including 5e hardcore, hardcore mode, which is on drive through RPG, a, a different way to look at how to run 5th edition in a more kind of classic hardcore style. What's interesting is looking at hardcore mode. I was looking at it earlier today or I think yesterday. And what's interesting about hardcore mode is that it really looks like Shadow Dark. That if you look at what Shadow Dark does with the 5e system, that's kind of what 5e hardcore mode was was looking at. And I know that Kelsey has mentioned the influence that Runehammer was for her when she made Shadow Dark. So I think we can draw some like interesting lines of connection. Uh, but if you wanted to play 5e hardcore mode, might as well pick up Shadow Dark because it's awesome. And it's also free. You can buy the Quick Start Guide for Shadow Dark for free. Uh, they, uh, Runehammer also made Index Card role-playing game, which very, very popular. A lot of people told me, oh, you got to play Index Card RPG. I've never actually played it. I do own it. I got a copy sitting right over there. Uh, so that that is definitely cool. And another one called Easy D6, which is a D6-based RPG uh, that they've made. So clearly Runehammer is making lots and lots of different kinds of RPGs and kind of different kinds of products. And Crown and Skull is a new RPG that they have, that they have put out. I mentioned the free player's guide. No reason not to check out the free player's guide. It shows you all the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today, tells you about how to play the game. And because this game is very different, it's a very different kind of RPG than you would expect. Like, you know, it'd be easy to say, to compare it to something like Shadow Dark and be like, oh, it's another kind of old school game. Well, specifically, the creator says, no, it's not an old school style game. In fact, I don't even know what old school means anymore. It is an RPG. But I would actually... I'd claim that it's a little closer in style and theme to a game like Blades in the Dark. Not in that it's like a heist-based game, but in that it's a role-playing game where the mechanics of the system are interwoven with the setting that's going on to get to a particular style of play. The mechanics aren't like a Powered by the Apocalypse style mechanics or anything like that. I'll get into the mechanics. Just the feeling of the game. It fits. It feels like it. It fits that kind of style of sort of a Blades in the Darky sort of sort of, you know, the the way that the game is put together feels like that. 
Uh, it is a D20 game, but it's a D20 roll under. So you have no ability scores. You don't have the core six attributes like you do in most kind of classic style D&D games or in D&D itself or anything like that. Instead, everything is based on skills and you spend points to buy skills. And as the skill goes up, your number on that skill goes up and your goal when you're accomplishing that skill is to roll underneath it, which means if you have a six on a skill, you have to roll a six or under to succeed. If it's instead of 12, if you've added six more points to that, now it's a 12. Now it's 12 or under to succeed. You're more likely to succeed the higher the score is so it's a d20 roll under which is a really kind of different system uh a one for example is a critical hit and a 20 for example is a critical fail so that whole part of it is turned on its head and that right off the bat is going to get people to go whoa wait what but it makes sense when you're looking at it you have target numbers and you're rolling under the target number that's pretty much how it goes instead of rolling instead of the core mechanic being roll a 20 set a die add a modifier to it and match it up up against a dc you instead have a target number that you're aiming for and your goal is to roll the die and roll underneath the target number if you're used to call a cthulhu or other sort of d100 kind of games a lot of d100 kind of games you're rolling under the d100 score the scores go up your job is to roll under the score uh so that you know if you're familiar with that uh, you could be familiar with the core mechanic of of crown and skull except it's a d20 instead of d20 instead of d100 Another major factor is the players roll all of the dice. So the GM, if you're used to a cipher-based system or you're used to Power by the Apocalypse, this will not be uncommon to you. The idea that you are sort of setting the stage and setting the, the target numbers and things like that and setting what's going on and the players are rolling all the dice. The players roll defense to defend against creatures. They roll their own attack rolls. All of the rolls are on the player side. Now, this gets into this whole idea of opinionated RPGs. I really, really love opinionated rpgs because the more of them that are out there the more we will find rpgs that match our own individual tastes for the kind of games that we love only a cup i really think like i think everybody other than hasbro and wizards of the coast with DD, they they have to try to make an rpg that's going to bring in a lot of different people and even that one is still an opinionated rpg they just have to go a little bit wider Every other publisher in the TTRPG space can be opinionated about what they want to do. They don't have to be all things to all people. They can instead focus their attention on trying to be a certain way. And I know GMs, I've talked to other GMs, I've talked to other creators who cannot even fathom the idea of a system where the GM doesn't roll dice. Like, why would I not want to roll my dice? I love rolling dice. That's cool. You just don't in this. And you actually can still roll dice, but you're rolling dice for different things. You're rolling dice for random tables. You're rolling rolling dice to to see what direction things are going. You're rolling to see like who's getting targeted. You're rolling to see the tactics of monsters, but you're not rolling things like attack rolls. There isn't a us versus them on rolling attack rolls versus rolling defense rolls and things like that. So, you know, but that's one right off the bat. You go, oh, wait a minute. You know, don't roll dice. I don't like it. I want to be able to roll my monsters. I want to attack with my monsters and do what my monsters do. There are other games for that. This isn't it. Uh, I mentioned that there's no attributes, just skills. Uh, that the, the main focus on the game are the skills that you have and the equipment that you have. And there's a big focus on skills and equipment. And that's really the main driver of what your character's interface to the world is. And you there, there are still lots of times where you might have a player just roll a die. And there, you know, you, a lot of times you say like you're rolling 10 or under, right? If you, you, you want to roll 10 or under uh, in order to accomplish a thing, if it's not tied to a skill. Otherwise, you are rolling against your own skill number. Your skill has a number and you're rolling against that. Now, the GM might say, yeah, but there's modifiers for certain things. That's certain types of skills that you're doing 
are actually going to be lowered by a certain number because of the difficulty of something. So the standard rate would probably be zero, but that can still be modified by circumstances and actually make certain things harder. That's sort of the equivalent of raising a DC. The only difference is I, I, I feel like in this game, you would do that less often than you would on choosing a different difficulty class for a standard kind of 5e or D20. You know, I mean, this is a D20 game, but like, you know, typical D20 game. Then another interesting bit is that your equipment and your skills are your hit points. You don't have hit points. Instead, when you take damage, you either cross off a skill or cross off a piece of equipment. Depending on the kind of damage you take, you might do both. If you really hit hard, you might actually roll a D6, and that's how many pieces you lose. So monsters or effects that are causing damage to you instead remove skills and remove equipment uh this is one of those areas where like i would have to see it in play to really understand what that's like i i get the concept the thing that i bring up in my mind the question i have which i don't know if it's a valid concern or not is do you get into this situation of sort of a death spiral where the more damage you've taken the less you're able to do and the less you're able to do, then the more likely you are to fail at the things that are going to cause damage. Do you get caught in this spiral where you're weaker and you're, you're, you're falling apart? Now, healing and resting and other things still let you bring back your skills. You can repair equipment. So if you have equipment that you cross off, you can bring that equipment back by repairing it. Sometimes the equipment is just plain destroyed and you have to get new equipment. Uh, but other times you're able to actually repair your equipment. But that idea that you're like your equipment and your skills are your hit points is a really interesting concept. Now, that's not true on the monster side. Monsters do have hit points. And when you inflict damage, you roll a damage die like you normally do. One interesting thing is you do not roll attack rolls. So when, as a character, if you are attacking a monster, you just roll the damage that your die would do. There's no attack roll. Now, monsters have a sort of a damage threshold. They have a defense um, score. And the defense score is the amount that the die has to be over to inflict damage to the monster. So the higher you roll, the better you roll. But if you roll low, you might not do any damage at all, depending on the defense that they've got. I'm going to dig into some of this. We're going to show some of this in the, in, the actual, uh, in the actual book itself. But I thought that that was pretty interesting. So character creation and character growth are done with a series of points. You start off with like 50 hero points. They call them hero points. You start off with 50 hero points. You spend those on what skills that you want. You can also, I think you, st you spend those to buy equipment too. So it's a universal resource. You're not worried about gold or money or currency or anything else like that. It's all about earning these points. And the, the points help you uh, pick up gear or skills, depending on what you're going. Now, you don't have to do custom character creation from the get-go. If you want to jump on the game, they've actually created what I think is excellent, a bunch of different character templates right these are really simple you want to be a soldier you have your flaws your core abilities your skills and your equipment and it's already set you just kind of pick a few things as you go that way you can jump into the game very easily if you want something that's more of like a class-based system because this is not a class-based game you don't have core classes instead everything is based on the abilities that you buy with the uh, with the scores that you've got uh, then of course there are things like the, uh, you can imagine like a 5e, they have sort of the, the various character characteristics of, you know, flaws, bonds, and that sort of thing that kind of exists here where you say like, I am a, it actually feels similar to the cipher system. I'm a tall, slender elf, uh, equipped with a fishing pole, paddle and net. Uh, and it all started when I was taken prisoner and, but now I am, I'm, I'm, but now I fight to earn my place. So you have this sort of like ran, you can roll randomly on these, or you can select these in order to kind of build your character based on what you're, what you're doing here. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then you, yeah, you have your flaws as well. Flaws actually gain you points. So you pick when you, you earn 
for each flaw you pick, you earn points that you can then spend on other areas. That's actually feels a little bit like, I haven't played GURPS in 40 years, but it feels GURPS-like in in how that works. And then you have some of the the main things that you're able to do that are almost like feats uh, in, in, in how you build it out. So very different way of kind of building a character and running it. So you can see like a character sheet is a pretty simple affair, right? A lot, lots of blank lines, not a, not a lot of stuff on here, uh, on the crown and skull website, which is linked in the show notes. You can actually build a character with a character generator, similar to like shadow darklings as allows you to build a shadow dark character. You can build a digital character that will dump out a PDF as well. So that's pretty cool. But the character sheets are really simple. Like I think you could actually fit a lot of it Maybe on, I don't know if you could fit it on an index card, but you could fit a character into a much smaller area uh, than it than it typically has. Uh, one of the reasons that I kind of compare this a little bit to Blades in the Dark is how Blades in the, the setting of Duskfall in Blades of the Dark is really tied to a lot of the mechanics that are going on in there. That when you buy your copy of Blades in the Dark, you are getting both a game system and a game world that are intended to be played together. The same is true with Crown and Skull. The main setting is called the North Holds. And one thing that I really like about this game, which I found more difficult in a game like Blades in the Dark, Blades in the Dark gave you like this huge atlas of all these locations, all these districts that you kind of had to learn all these different places that are going on it was a lot for me to digest and for like a short-term game i had trouble with it one thing i really like about crown and skull is even though it is a setting the whole system is built around one particular setting the setting is very digestible it's got lots of blanks lots of open areas for you to kind of add your own parts to it and a big focus on like look you're just going to focus on one of these places so it has their equivalent of like the six main things like what are the north holds right and in one page manages to discuss what the core concepts are to the North Holds. That they're recovering from a terrible time of calamity. There was this huge dragon named Bloodwing that became like, they created, it was driven mad by a slime entity called the Corruption. Rampage caused desolation, uh, but only the very old remember time when the dragons and mortal folk were allies. There was a formless evil growing in the world, uh, but despite this, good has a foothold, and everybody, generally, not everybody, but people, the big heroes of the area, have, end, end up having to make an irrevocable choice called either Crown or Skull. Are you sort of the lawful group or are you sort of the chaotic group? It's not quite like good and evil. It's a little fuzzier than good and evil, but it's sort of like this, which path do you take, which you make after you earn 25 character points with your character. So after you've played for a little while, you earn enough points, then suddenly somebody will come to you and make you will make a choice of crown or skull. And whichever one of those choices you make, you gain new abilities and new powers uh, that exist for those particular areas. So pretty, pretty neat way. But I like how, and that's, that's an example of how the mechanic mechanics of the game this idea of expanding into either crown or skull depending on when you hit a certain point fits in with the story of the game's world itself but that's not the only place when you build a character you start off you you choose where you're going to begin like where your hometown is now it's i i believe i'm not sure if characters are supposed to each pick their own hometown or whether as a group you choose what hometown you're all from it feels like the latter would be easier uh, but I don't know if that's necessarily how you have to play. But there are, there's only three, right? There's Garden Burrow, the Forest Refuge, which you know was founded by elves centuries ago. Uh, since then, has grown to a few hundred residents and travelers crossing the West. 
you, you know, you'll be diving in mysterious forests and long-standing feuds with frogmen, tensions with dwarves in the midst of the Emerald Narrows. Glenborough is an elemental place of pilgrimage for druids and nature folk of the realm. Rivergate, a bustling trade city. Slimshire, a high plains outpost. So three different potential cities that you start. But I don't have to read a huge atlas. I can read one paragraph of text and generally get what's going on. But then you can sort of dive in a little deeper. So there are sections where they talk more about those three different places, who the main NPCs are in those locations, what kind of quests the characters might pick up. I found it when I was reading it to be, you know, here's an example of the garden borough, right? In the West. And it says here, you know, three main locations. Again, it just sort of expands it a little bit. Very digestible, very easy to pick up. Not like, hey, here's 40 pages worth of stuff that you have to read in order to be able to run this location for, you know, in case in case you decide that you like this game. Instead, it's like, no, very focused stuff that you can pick up and run. Particularly if you're like, okay, well, once we've picked a town, then I have then I can go and read the specifics of this town. I don't have to read anything else. So th- those are examples of how the setting is sort of interwoven into the game and into, into the play of the game which I, I found really uh, I found really cool. I really liked it. Monsters have a very different design in Crown and Skull that you might find in other books. For one, they, I mean, we already know that monsters don't really behave like characters. I guess since post third edition of D&D days, we got away from the ideas that monsters run like characters run. But in this case, it's really abstract. Monsters really don't act anything like characters act. And just in the idea that characters do damage to monsters, monsters, Monsters take away skills and equipment from characters. Like they're not even attacking the same thing. They're, you're not rolling opposed attack rolls. That monsters have an attack score, which you can see here. That is the subtraction of the defense roll that a character would make when they are rolling to defend against it. Likewise, the defense, the armored titan is probably not a great example because it's really, it's really hardcore. We'll go with conjured dead. Oh, those are, yeah, that's fine. We'll go with the conjured dead. Except those are weird too. Cryptopedes. We'll go with a cryptopede, which looks pretty nasty. 50 hit points is a lot of hit points, right? So like an attack is what you have to subtract from your defense roll to defend against this creature. The defense roll is how much damage is their threshold. You have to do more than that amount of damage to actually inflict damage to the creature. Phases are when they activate. I'm going to talk about phases in a bit. Yeah, when the phase comes up, monsters do one to three actions. So they can do multiple, some could do multiple actions within a phase. That makes sense. So you can see that like a stat block for a monster is really pretty thin. And there's this tactics list. And the interesting thing here is that, and we talk about when, when do the GMs roll dice, the GM can, can or will roll dice to see what a monster does on its turn. Again, very different, right? We're used to sort of the tactical combat style where you were deciding what the monsters do. In this case, you're running sort of the AI of the Cryptopede. You roll a die on its particular phase. It might scurry out of reach. Uh, it might regenerate 10 hit points. It might instead do a pincer bite it might do a whirling tail barb now i I, when you read it it will it's not going to act stupidly so if it doesn't make sense like it's not if you roll a two to five on a pincer bite but it can't reach anything it's not going to do that instead no it's going to go it's going to go scurry you know you know it's going to go scurry around and try to get up to somebody you know instead of making its pincer bite and then i'll make a pincer bite on another attack 
So it's pretty interesting how monsters are really sort of like obstacles that the GM puts in place. There's actually a very thin amount of monsters that are listed in this book with a greater expectation, I believe, that you're going to be building or customizing a lot of the monsters that you want to build or customize depending on the game that you're running. There are a bunch of sort of adventures that are in this book, some very thin adventures or very thin sort of dungeons and scenarios that you run that describe monsters that aren't in the book. I found that a little confusing, but again, I didn't like read every single page of this thing. So there are probably reasons for that. But I think like a lot of times the expectation is that you as the GM are going to be fudging some of these things, kind of building your own monsters, building your own stats for the kinds of monsters that you would be running in this game. But I, I thought it took me a while from to get my head around like how a monster operates and how different that is than like how a character operates, which in this are completely different, completely different experiences. So let's talk about phases. So phases are how Crown and Skull handles something like turn order and initiative. There is no sort of initiative role. You might roll to decide who is going to act first. But generally, instead, a turn is made up of a certain number of phases. This actually reminds me of Shadow of the Demon Lord by Robert Schwab and how he has sort of a fast turn, slow turn order where fast turn players, fast turn monsters, slow turn players, slow turn monsters. And you don't roll initiative. People just act in whatever phase of those they want to do. Instead, in Crown and Skull, there are five phases and you can act in different phases. Now, Early phases, you can do less stuff, I think, than later phases. So uh, when your phase comes up, I, th I, th I believe I have that right. Let me make sure I have that correct. Uh, I, thought, I thought there was a, when you do early phase stuff, less stuff happens, but maybe I'm wrong. No, that's right. Yeah, if you do a hurry, if you do move in something else, then you get all enemies in the scene get plus five attack against you for one round. So you get to choose kind of which phase you're going to go in. Monsters are have a prearranged set of which phases they act upon. And some monsters will act multiple times in a phase. I showed you that Cryptopede, for example, activates twice in a given round. And the players can decide, well, which phase do I want to operate in and what do I want to do there? Typically in a phase, you can like move or do an action. But there is a thing called hurry where you can do moving and make an action but you lower your defense by five when you're doing that, which means enemies are going to be, their attack score is going to be much higher, which means it's going to be much harder for you to be able to defend against their attacks when, you're, when, you're, when your turn comes up. Uh, but the whole idea is that you don't have to constantly uh, roll for, you're, you're not rolling dice to see who goes when, you're not worried about the turn order. Instead, the players decide when they're going to go. They pick which phase they're going to operate in and which phase they're going to activate in uh, and so on. Now, there are times where like you, you, you know, a creature will die if certain something, something happens by turn five, by phase five. So like you want to be able to have like your healers be doing stuff up front because if they're waiting to the last minute, the character might die before they get the chance to heal them. So there's definitely like when the players and the book even says this, like you're going to get used to like when you should operate the more you play it. That's an example of I haven't played it. I don't know exactly how it all works. I don't know what it feels like. But the book says like, hey, once you get a feeling for this, you're going to start changing how you think about phase phases and how you decide when characters operate given certain phases. So I thought it was pretty neat. I like the sort of callback to the Shadow of the Demon Lord style of fast turn, slow turn sort of idea. You know, initiative is one of those things that everybody's trying a different way of handling it. Everybody's got a different way to try to. Nobody really likes it. Everybody wants to speed it up one way or the other. And they're, they're, I have yet to find like the idea ideal solution there's lots of lots of attempts to try to change things phasing is is one of the ones that crown and skull does getting into this idea of sort of an opinionated game that you when you are doing your exploration you do a lot of like rolling on hexes to see what happens in the next area you go to like what is a thing that you find there and what is an event that occurs and that even goes into dungeons that there's these sort of pseudo mega dungeons that exist inside 
inside the book. And the intention is that you are doing this thing called like a mapless dungeon where you essentially go into a chamber, you do whatever you're doing in that chamber. Then you roll a die to see what the next chamber is that you go to when you're exploring it. When you roll a four, it means you move to the next part of the dungeon. So there are three of these sort of mega dungeons in here. And each time you sort of roll a location name, like the pillar fall, and then you might roll a rat swarm. Uh, but when you roll four, that's when you like, like you manage to get out of that one and into the next section and then there'd be the next section. So they each of the mega dungeons are like these connected sets of chambers that you're rolling against to see how you completed them when you go through. It was a really interesting way to do it. And this is actually an idea that you could probably take and pop out and drop into your other fantasy RPG of choice. This idea of exploring a dungeon through dice rolls rather than like a formal map. But the book is very clear. Hey, you want to use a formal map? We're not in your way. You can still use a formal map for these things. You don't have to do a mapless dungeon crawl if you don't, if you don't want to do it. All throughout the book, I thought this was really neat. All throughout the book are bits of fiction, like one page or two pages of fiction that give you a in-world view of the topic that the book is talking about. So they have like a discussion of like what it is like for the heroes to engage with like Frogkin in their particular dungeon. Each of the aspects have things like that. So I thought it was kind of a neat way to throw in bits of micro fiction because it's not super long. It's like one, one to two pages, but enough that you can read and kind of enjoy it. It's, a, you know, again, reading a book like this because it is a 356 page book. So it's a big chunky, big chunky book. It does require a commitment if you're planning to run it, but I definitely found the style that it is written in to be easier to absorb and digest than I otherwise would. That said, like I still look at it and go, wow, I really don't know what it would be like to run this game. I want to run it. I look at it and I go, this is really cool. And hopefully I will have the opportunity to run it. It's definitely the kind of game where I'm like, boy, I sure love to have somebody run it for me. So I get the idea first, but that's not really how RPGs work, right? Like the GMs are often the only one that ever picks up a, a book and then they have to, they have to play off of that. Of course, there's YouTube videos and things like that. We could probably see how, how the game actually plays out. So I really liked Crown and Skull. I was excited about it. I bought the digital version before I knew that they were sending me a preview version. So I was willing to throw my money at it right up front to say, like, I, I, I want to I wanna pick this up. If you go to the Crown and Skull website, you can see uh, you can see all the digital tools that they have available. Quick start guides, the guide for players. So you can read through that to see if it's the kind of game you understand. Like I said, it is an opinionated RPG. It runs very differently from other RPGs. This is not the kind of thing where, you know, you can jump right in and be like, oh yeah, it's just like other RPGs. I would say, unlike Shadow Dark, where Shadow Dark said, you know, lots of people know how to play 5e. If we hang on to a lot of 5e mechanics, but put them in a more opinionated format, it will be easier for people to pick up. I think that definitely worked for Shadow Dark. Crown and Skull, completely different way of playing than I'm used to playing. And that alone is a question of like, well, are you, is, is that the kind of thing that you're interested in running? Is that the kind of style of game that you're interested in playing? So the good news is, is you can get a good dive into the player's guide. You can send it to your players, have them read it and get their idea. Are they interested in running a game like this? Uh, so that's very good. Uh, the, when you when you decide to invest in it, you can get the Crown and Skull Gold Edition. These all come with both the digital bundle and the physical version. This one is eighty bucks for the, and it's it's a really really nice book. Like this is that kind of like heirloom quality heirloom quality RPG that I really love, all in one format. Uh, it is fifty dollars for the normal version. I, I haven't seen the normal version. It also looks really good. I expect that it is a it is a fine 
Uh, it is a fine tome as well. And again, gives you the digital bundle and the physical book all in one price. That's probably the one that I would recommend. Uh, and then you can get the digital bundle for 30 bucks. I really feel like, you know, at $30, if you're willing to invest 30 bucks in it, go ahead and spring the other 20 and go ahead and get a physical version of the book. Uh, particularly if you think this is going to be something that you play. My, my expectation is you will probably, you and your players will probably know if it's something you want to play by reading through the player's guide and reading the material that they have online for free. If you get to the point where you're like, yeah, this definitely looks like something we would want to play. I think it's probably worth jumping up straight to the physical version of the book because it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book. And while digital digital having a digital version along with it is super useful this is the kind of book the 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 design of the book the feeling of the book the artwork of the book this is something you want to sit and i did sit in your favorite chair with your favorite beverage and just fall into the world and enjoy what you read Uh, i am really really glad in fact what happened I'll, i'll share the full discussion is i ordered the digital version started reading it and immediately regretted not buying the physical version. And I reached out and said, is there a way for me to upgrade and just pay the extra 20 bucks? And they said, oh, we'll send you the, this one instead. So they sent me this one instead and I thank them very much for it. But I was, I would have dropped the money to get the physical version because as soon as I opened it up and saw some of the graphic design work and the style of the game and the idea that there's so much of the world in it, that really excited me. And that was something I wanted to do. So that is Crown and Skull. Again, my recommendation is take a look at the player's guide. If you're interested, send it to your players and see if they're interested. And if you are, pick up the, uh, the basic edition physical book uh, along with the digital version and give it a try. It looks really, really cool. I have discussed all of the different kinds of things that patrons get. And one of the big ones that I've been working on now for a couple of years is the City of Arches. I have described the City of Arches in previous shows. The thing that I wanted to talk about today is the City of Arches as a Patreon product is pretty close to done. I don't expect that I'm going to be diving in other than fixing any like truly barbaric errors that are occurring. But over the past month, I have done a top to bottom rewrite of the City of Arches going from the very first stuff I wrote two years ago to the most recent stuff that I wrote a few, you know, like a month or so ago and tightened everything up, cleaned up a lot of the factions, reordered a lot of stuff, moved things around, made sure that there was consistency in a lot of the design. For example, all of the major biomes, all of these areas that you can explore, all of them have 1D20 random encounters for those. All of them have a very quick location summary for you to be able to read uh, for uh, every one of the major biomes. So now all of the different locations that you can explore all have the same format. A lot of the history has been sort of better put together and made sure that the history that's described also fits the campaign adventure outlines that exist later on. Those can- a couple of those campaign outlines were written more than a year ago. And so some of the history changed. All of the continuity of that has been fixed. So now the City of Arches is a 124-page PDF. Uh, people have already been running campaigns in it. They've been, There's actually a, an organized play campaign that's running on with it at a local game shop here, which is incredible incredible. And uh, if you want to check that out, that is now available. It has been available, but now this version of it, this kind of refreshed version of the City of Arches is now available on the Sly Flourish Patreon. And the next steps, I've commissioned two different covers for it. I've commissioned some new internal artwork for it. Uh, and will become a uh, new Kickstarter project probably later this year. I don't know when. I don't know. A lot of it is like, I want to get a lot of material for it. I took all of this. My, my friend and partner, Scott Gray, has received all of this. So he's starting to dig into it. Uh, 
uh, to do formal editing across the whole thing. So we've got a lot that's going to be going on, but we're going to be crowdfunding this whole project on Kickstarter for the editing, for the artwork, for page design and layout, and for physical versions of the book. We're going to be working on all that. So I'm super excited about it. But also, if you want to dive into it right now, uh, you can dive into this by joining uh, the Patreon, becoming a patron of Flourish and picking it up. Something else you can get for being a patron of Flourish. I've been working on other areas. I showed, I have, I have examples of online tools that you can use. I'll probably show those. But one thing that I added this last, uh, the last couple of weeks is in Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. So Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 is lots of stuff that's similar to what you would find in the Lazy DMs Companion, but isn't in the Lazy DMs Companion. Volume 1 is mostly stuff that is in the Lazy DMs Companion. Volume 2 is all different stuff. And there's lots of different things in here. You see lots of different stuff. But the one I'm going to talk about today is the 1D100 Monuments. I love monuments. And uh, I have yet to find a source that covers monuments the way that I want them to be covered. So to begin with, you have to decide, well, what is a monument, right? And to me, a monument is a central structure or central of a, of a scene or a location. And by a scene or a location, I mean something in the order of like 30 to 100 feet big. So it is not a dungeon. It is generally not a multi-room structure. Although you'll see that there's like little areas where I kind of cheated on, on it in here. They are big enough that they really matter. They're the set piece of a stage. And I like to think of it like a play. That when you're taking a play, you want to have like one object in the center of the play that's really grabbing the attention of everybody and saying, hey, this place is different. Where we would do this in our TTRPGs is if the characters are exploring a region, when they get to a place, they would see a monument at that region. And that monument could be any sort of different thing. But it helps define the location of the scene. It makes things solid and makes things real. They also act as vehicles for things like secrets and clues. You can you can flavor your monument with elements from your own game we're going to talk about this in a bit with like adding your own factions to it they can become a way that the characters can learn something about the world about themselves about their villains about the locations lots of different things they can learn by exploring a monument by reading a monument understanding a monument observing a monument so monuments are really good for that they're also good ways to tie mechanical effects. You have to do something with the monument. You have to destroy it. You have to rebuild it. You have to draw evil energy out of it. You have to put holy energy into it. You have to do something with the monument to create a new effect. Maybe the monument is sending out pulses of necrotic energy, but if you can energy into it, you will fix it and it will now send out healing waves instead. There, so monuments can have a physical effect as well. There are often things that you could actually like physically have at your table with tabletop terrain. You could draw them. You could take a three by five card and write the name of the monument and set it out there. So they become a clear object that players can recognize as a central to the scene that you're running. I have not found many books that cover monuments. And those that do usually don't have a lot of them. So this past week, I was like, you know what? I'm going to build a D100 list of monuments. I want to have a list of 100 different kinds of monuments, different kinds of things that you would discover while you might be exploring an overland location, or you might even be the center point of a dungeon. It might be in a large hall in a dungeon. There might be a monument in the center of this dungeon. So I created this D100 monuments list and then put it together as a page inside Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. You can also get this D100 monuments list Inside the lazy GM generator, I replaced the monument list in there with this list. So now there's a hundred different monuments in there that can be tied to things like spell effects or factions, conditions, and things like that. This one page also includes descriptions, conditions, and origins. Who made it? What's its current condition? And what is a thing that you can describe about it? So like, let's roll a couple of examples just for fun. 
So I'm going to take my D100 and I'm going to take 2D20 and we'll start with description and condition. So description is seven, a forgotten. Two is condition, forgotten acidic. And then 15, a forgotten acidic fiendish. And then we roll the monument and we roll the 15. A, a, a forgotten acidic fiendish cage. So immediately you're like, wow, okay, I can work with that. There is like an, a fiendish cage dripping with acid, burned bodies hanging into it that hasn't been seen in hundreds of years. And you've just discovered this thing, right? And then you're like, well, who made it? What fiendish group built this? Are there demons and devils about that use this fiendish cage to capture their prisoners? What do we do with that? So that gives you an idea of like a random thing. We'll do another one. 15 is a forsaken nine is a, a forsaken ringing 19 ethereal 99 of a for of forgot what i say forsaken ethereal no forsaken what I, for, I already forgot what i rolled on the other one 15 no 19 crystalline no it was something else somebody help me Ringing. Ah, thank you. A uh, forsaken ringing ethereal well. So you hear this well. You can hear it far away. And then you get closer and you go through the old woods and you see this well. But you could also be a dungeon area, right? Where you can hear this almost ringing, the singing sound that's echoing across. You're wondering where it's coming from. And you look in this well and you look in and you see the ethereal plane and people reaching up to you looking for help on the other side. Very, very flavorful stuff. So I really, I, I feel like monuments, you could get away with a list of 20. The uh, Lazy DM's companion includes a list of 20. I have a D50 list in, or 50 of them in the Lazy DM workbook, which is a lot. And that's probably mostly enough. But I was like, you know, I really want 100 of them. I want a lot of them. I really don't want to have repeats. I want to have a lot of interesting ones. So I took a whole lot of them and brought them in and um, put them together in this big D100 list, which you can now get as a patron of Sly Flourish in Uncovered Secrets Volume two uh and also available in the lazy gm generator so uh, that was kind of a fun thing to work on recently one of the most valuable things i think you can do for your campaign is write out a list of all of the factions that exist in your personal campaign whether you're running a homebrew campaign or whether you are running with a published campaign make yourself a list of all of the factions that you are involved in the campaign, different groups, whether old or new, different deities, old or new, different political groups, you know, assassin groups, any, any kind of faction that you think has an effect on the game, you can put them into this list and make it a list that you can roll randomly on. And the advantage of that is when you are doing something like taking a monument or an item or any kind of discovery that you want to drop into your game, you can roll on that faction list and see which faction might have a connection to that list. And it draws your players into the world that you're building. It ties your campaign and all the campaign elements directly into uh, the campaign that you're building it really brings in it, it ties the players it ties you it ties the characters it ties the story to specific elements of these campaigns it's a really valuable way that you can customize lots of random roles and lots of random lists and lots of random sources but tie them specifically to the campaign that you had so i'm going to do an example of that today where we're going to take a look at my shadow dark game where i have a a bunch of different factions that are operating in my shadow dark game but i'm actually going to build a random list of factions and so ex and the examples can go across all different things so you can have villages so we can have wardenwood uh we can have aklaklik the goblin village we can have deities like mugdoblub sort of an elder evil titania the elven the elven queen 
Uh, we can have other factions like the Knights of St. Idris. We can have uh, individual people that we might not have seen before, like Haldren. And we could kind of keep going with this as far as we want to go. We could add on a whole series of gods, Shun, Kytheros, Almazats, uh, Undaluk, and so on. You probably don't need a ton of them. I mean, you could go as far as you want to go. You could add a D100 list, but probably somewhere like 12 to 20 is probably pretty good. Uh, I don't think I would necessarily uh, you know, do more than that. Uh, we'll have the Green Knights. I need one more. I could do the Red Thorns. So right there, we have like a D12 list, right? And what we can do is when the characters are exploring a region, I might actually use this in my next game. On top of rolling things like random monuments and random conditions of these monuments, I can also add my faction into it. So uh, here's the example of like one D100 monuments. Uh, we'll roll the monument first so we know what we're talking about here. 55 is a meteorite, okay? And then we are going to we'll roll a description. What kind of meteorite is it? It is a 19, an overgrown meteorite. Its condition is five. Overgrown frozen meteorite. Its origin is 11. We might actually skip the origin. The faction actually works better for the origin. And then we'll roll a d12 and we roll an eight. So we have a frozen overgrown meteorite. And we rolled an eight of Kytheros. Right? So now Kytheros is the Lord of Time. So we know that we might have this meteorite that they're looking at. The characters find it sitting in the woods, shattered there, almost like, like Superman's ship, right? And it doesn't necessarily contain Kytheros, but maybe it is actually like a perfect D12 shaped object, right? Like instead of being, it is almost uniform in its construction as though some god from on high hurled a D12 down and it smashed into the ground and it's still frozen there. And they, they look at this and they realize like, oh, this is some, and then you could decide like, well, how is it connected to Kytheros? Is people that are connected to Kytheros, is time twisting around it so that when they go there, suddenly they realize like this is a hole in time where multiple realities are starting to come together that can kind of work uh let's roll another one just for fun 58 is a mine description is eight a macabre mine 11 is a, a radiant macabre mine of who and we roll a 12 one of wardenwood Right. So Wardenwood is the local village nearby. And it's perhaps they had a mine that they had been working on that now has like weird bones and dead people kind of pointing at it and, you know, all sorts of strange. And there's like this weird radiant energy that's coming out of it, a radiant crystal. So, you know, they could find signs to Wardenwood. Maybe they go back to Wardenwood to ask them about this weird, creepy, celestial, radiant, shrined, macabre mine. Uh, or maybe they just go in and explore it themselves. Now, in this case, uh, it feels like, well, that's like a whole dungeon. Well, it can be a whole dungeon. It could instead just be like one room or one chamber. So when we look at monuments, we say like, oh, we don't want monuments to be too big or too small. In this case, it could just be the, like the mine entrance and inside is the one thing that's creating a radiant, that's creating some form of radiant energy. Uh, let's roll one more. 68, a petrified creature. 18, a colossal petrified creature. Condition is one, a smoky, colossal, petrified creature of six. Haldren, right? So Haldren is a, a sorcerer. So he could have a colossal, petrified creature of Haldren. An example of this could be perhaps he had a stone guardian that he used to help protect him, but the guardian got like destroyed and it's sort of frozen in place and they can see signs of Haldren's sorcery that this was once a guardian of Haldren that has been destroyed or frozen or broken apart by like the Knights of St. Yidris. So they can learn those things together. 
So there's a real value in having this list of factions and combining it with lists of other things. I've been combining it with the list of D100 monuments that's available in Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 from the Sly Flourish Patreon. Uh, but you can tie it to anything. You could tie it to dungeons. You could tie it to quests. You could tie it to NPCs. You can tie it to items that the characters find, treasure that they pick up, spells, all kinds of things that you can tie those factions together. And what really helps is those factions are directly from your campaign and your world. They're the things that are important to you. Sometimes you can get these directly from the source book that you're running, but even then it helps you to tailor it around the focus of the campaign that you're running. So even if you're running a big setting like Midgard or Forgotten Realms, where there's dozens to hundreds of different gods, you could instead shrink those down and say, I'm only going to worry about the gods from the Southlands because that's the area that I'm going to run. Or I'm going to set up a different list for the underworld because the underworld is different than everything else. And you might say, as your campaign progresses and as the characters move from region to region, you have different lists that you focus on. So you have your list for the underdark you have your list for the northlands you have your list from the southlands depending which region they are is the one that you roll for your factions but it's a really really handy tool to have really good for inspirational play really good for improvisational play you can use it during prep you can use it during play itself to kind of give you ideas to shake up your mind about uh, how you tie monuments items npcs quests dungeons and other things to the specifics of the campaign world that you've got and it's that layer of information that really makes each of your campaign settings unique Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we do a Patreon Q&A. Anybody can ask, anybody that's on the Patreon can ask an RPG-related question, uh, and I either, I answer all of them every Friday morning. Some of them make their way to the show here. Other ones become the catalyst for their own articles or videos elsewhere. Today, we have Knights of Roleplay, who says, you mentioned a list of subclasses that you don't allow in your campaigns. I'm about to do a session zero for a campaign, and I would like to exclude those subclasses. One is Twilight Cleric. What are the others? So the easy answer is the other one is the peace cleric but i've never actually run the peace cleric so i'm kind of making the assumption that i looked at the way the peace cleric operates and i saw things that were just going to make my life hard as a gm and i've heard other people talk about the problem that they have but that's not really what i want to talk about with this question the question isn't about what classes you exclude it should be about what what subclasses you include there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of subclasses out there for fifth edition now hundreds of them even within just the ones that are published by wizards of the coast there are dozens and dozens of subclasses from lots of sources that may make sense for your campaign and may not the idea that we instead say no we're only going to worry about which subclasses that hasbro and wizards of the coast have published and that we assume that all of them are allowed is in my opinion a mistake it's my opinion, right? You're free to choose however you want to play to choose. You did ask me the question, so that's why I'm bringing it up. And I'm instead trying to offer, hey, there's another way to look at it. And the other way to look at it would be anytime that you're running a particular campaign, look at what source material you think fits that campaign, fits the theme of that campaign. And limit the source material that you are allowing for that campaign. So if you say, for example, like I did, hey, we're going to be running an adventure set in the world of Midgard. Rather than using uh, Xanathar's Guide to Everything and Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, we are instead going to be using the Midgard Player's Handbook and the Tome of Heroes book by Kobold Press. So a whole new set of species and subclasses that you can use instead of the ones that typically exist in Tasha's and Xanathar's. 
And uh, yeah, it doesn't work with D&D Beyond directly. Yeah, you're better off using a paper character sheet or something like that. But it opens up new options and it flavors your 5e game in a different way than it had been previously. The kind of characters that I'm seeing operating in my in my Empire of the Ghouls game are completely different from the ones that I saw for like Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which were very different from my Scarlet Citadel game and so on because we've been selecting different sources to open up those different subclasses. I think it's probably pretty common that people say, okay, well, we'll at least allow the player's handbook and Xanathar's guide and Tasha's guide. I've typically been saying that we don't include Tasha's guide except for some of the other quality of life changes for Tasha's, which is confusing. But I think that's kind of what we're going to get to because we're going to have a whole new version of D&D coming out. We have new games like Tales of the Valiant and Core uh, Cubicle 7, C7020. We have Level Up Advanced 5e. We have so many different ones that for us to sit down and play our 5e game, I think it's really works well if we and the players get together and say, here's a limited set of sources that we're going to use so that we can all pay more attention to these sources, understand what they do, and enjoy how these subclasses fit the theme of the campaign that we're running. So rather than just saying, hey, here are particular subclasses that are banned or not banned, you can instead say, for this campaign, here are the sources that we are going to allow. Uh, and open it up to just those and and have that conversation with your players, right? I think some players you'll say like, oh, I just want to use what's in D&D Beyond. And you're like, that's fine. Just stick to the player's handbook stuff. And then we get into the whole problem that the, the, uh, the, the D&D Beyond doesn't do a good job. It doesn't do any job at filtering out character options when people are building characters from their character sheet. It shows them everything that is available to them uh, anytime they're modifying their character. Don't email me. I know it says you can limit campaign source material. You, in fact, cannot. Go try it out for yourself, and you will see that you can still pick character options from sources that you have, regardless of what was selected by your GM in the campaign settings. It is a big problem with D&D Beyond, and it'd be really nice if they fixed that so that you could at least say, hey, just pick Player's Handbook. Better is, look at the original material, and you should kind of work with your players on this. Have them look at the source material that you select and let them pick from the source material directly before they start building their character in any kind of online tool because that way they will know exactly what to look for rather than start skimming through every single feat, every subclass, every origin that anybody has ever unlocked. Um, that That is something you want to do. So that's the reason that I wanted to bring up that particular question. Better than limiting a, one particular subclass or another is choose new sources of subclasses that you're bringing in that fit the theme of the campaign that you're running. David P. says, I'm running two homebrew campaigns and I find myself frequently getting writer's block and trying to decide what to do in the next session. I've got all of your books and hundreds of other books and feel overwhelmed in trying to find the right scenario. Any tips for writer's block GM decision paralysis? I have some thoughts and a lot of it is going to depend on where that feeling is coming from and what exactly that feeling is. It doesn't sound like it's actual writer's block as in I'm out of ideas. It sounds more like it's I've got too many ideas ideas and I don't know which one to pick. And I think what we're facing there is this idea of like an opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is this idea that I might pick something and then say, I could have put anything else there. And instead I pick this one thing. How do I know that this one thing is better than every other thing I could pick? An example would be an adventure. You want to run an adventure. So you pick this one adventure from this one book, right? And your the opportunity cost is the idea that you could have picked any adventure ever written in the last 50 years for D&D plus anything you could have come up with. I don't want to say infinite because infinite's really big, but that's thousands of choices of published stuff, tens of thousands of things, maybe a hundred thousand. And how did you know the one you picked was the best out of those hundred thousand? That's opportunity cost. And the answer is you, you don't and you shouldn't, right? 
And instead, you have to kind of do this like fireman decision making, right? Fireman decision making is pick the first one that's going to do the job. So rather than trying to find the optimal choice for something, uh, you instead say, what's the first one that I can get to that I think will do the job? What is the first adventure that you come to that says, hey, this will be a fun game for my friends and I? Because really the adventure doesn't matter nearly as much as like how you run it and and the dynamic that you have between you and your your, your friends and your players at the game. So th- that feeling of opportunity cost can definitely be a burden. And the best way to kind of treat that is instead of saying, what are all of the other ones that I could get in place? Just, you know, as you're going through and say, ah, that's a cool one. I'm going to go with that. I do that with Dyson maps. If I'm picking, picking a map, I don't go through every one of three or four or a thousand, right? He has a thousand different maps. If I go through a thousand different maps to try to find the perfect map, I'm going to be there all day. Instead, I find the first map that'll do the job. The first map that resembles the thing that I'm looking for, that's close enough, in it goes. And that gets away from that idea of like getting away from decision paralysis and letting perfect be the enemy of good, right? The famous, I think Vol- they, they claim it, Voltaire said it right that let, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough and that's that's a good philosophy right? it's a reason why like we tie it to voltaire is you know, thousands of years ago is because if we're go- if you're seeking perfection you're always going to be seeking but if you're with good enough you, you're going to pick the first one that you've got so i think that that really helps a lot another exercise that i go through that i really really like and i find is, is really valuable for me is writing a list of 10 things so instead of trying to find the one perfect adventure idea write down 10 adventure ideas perfection be damned and then look through those to say which of those 10 do i think really kind of grabs me and what you'll find is the more you're stripping your brain for ideas the more that you're dropping these things out there and the further down you get you start to get better and better ideas right that is another, that's another way to kind of come up with things. Like what are the 10 that you would pick? That way it's also a finite list. You only have those 10. You pick from one of those 10 and off you go. You're not making a list of a hundred. You're not going on forever. But also the iteration of going through the list doesn't leave you time to decide whether or not one is good. Instead of hemming and hawing about that first one, you know, you have nine more. So just get it down and do the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. Right. And that way you're not bending on perfection each time. It can be really, really handy. And then another trick would be random lists that I really find value in rolling. I've been doing it a lot on this show. Rolling on random tables gives me ideas that I wouldn't come up with myself. And finding the best set of random tables that really help you get these ideas, uh, I think can be really valuable. I wrote the the Lazy DMs Companion around this idea that the Lazy DMs Companion has lots of different adventure scenarios and lots of different ways that you can roll to give you ideas about those adventure scenarios. It has lots of tools for like different kinds of quests, different kinds of missions, items, NPCs, locations, all kinds of stuff. But it also focuses them around these particular different kind of quest structures that we already know work well, like the Seven Samurai quest model or the Three of Five Keys quest model, the Jaws or the Raiders of the Lost Ark quest models, right? There's these different models that we know work well for RPGs in general that build situations that our characters can explore. And then we can roll randomly to kind of fill in different details that we might not have been able to fill in directly. So those would be my main advice. This, I think, is a common problem it's a reason why i put this question in here i think it's a it's a common problem of getting stuck trying to come up with ideas i don't think it's a lack of ideas i have a feeling and and you're you and i'm me and i don't know what's actually going on in your world but i if i'm going to make assumptions about things because here we are uh my assumption would be that a lot of it could be coming from that feeling of the loss of opportunity cost that if i how do i know that this thing is the absolute best purchase or best best option for this game and instead say, what's the first one that I think is going to do the job and going with that? I think that that can really help. 
Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. I hope you found this show useful. If you did and you want more stuff like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator signing up with all kinds of cool random tables for you to roll on, and you get an RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox every Tuesday. It's totally free to sign up. You can also support me directly on Patreon. It's a very low price. You get access to a whole bunch of different tools to help you run your RPGs, tips, tricks, the City of Arches, source book different online tools to help and the patreon q a and a dedicated discord server and you can pick up any of my books including the lazy dms companion which is packed with random tables the lazy return of the lazy dungeon master to help you prepare your game the lazy dm workbook to sit in front of you running your game forge of foes to help you build monsters and tons of fantastic adventure books to give you adventures that you can grab onto and run into your game thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg